Today in Science from Wired. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. You know, some things take a lot of work, like sending little robots to far off distant planets. And just as that's challenging, so too is running a successful e-commerce business, especially when there's so much to do. So I want to introduce you all to ShipStation. Now, I love using ShipStation because of its easy-to-use dashboard, which makes managing orders and printing labels a breeze and super smooth. Oh, and the customer service is just out of this world. It's exactly what you need to help grow your business. Sign up for your free 60-day trial at ShipStation.com slash technews. That's ShipStation.com slash technews. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Here's today's spoken edition of Wired. Zero-G Blood and the Many Horrors of Space Surgery by Adam Rogers Matthew Komarovsky wanted to be an astronaut, still does. The French-born anesthesiologist currently getting a PhD at Imperial College London applied to the European Space Agency in 2008, but he knows his chances are limited. Being basically a medical resident, I didn't get very far in the selection, Komarovsky says, but I've been working on building up my skills. Among those skills, administering anesthesia for surgery. And as Komarovsky found when he started looking at the literature on space medicine, that might be more helpful than it sounds. Of all the concerns about astronaut safety and health, traumatic injury is the one that worries people the most. It has the biggest potential impact on a mission, and worse, it's the one people know least about. In part, that's because it has never happened. Over decades of Apollo, Mir, Skylab, Space Shuttle and International Space Station missions, astronauts have had medical concerns and problems, and of course there have been deadly catastrophes. But no astronaut has ever had a major injury or needed surgery in space. If humans ever again venture past low Earth orbit and outward, say, toward Mars, someone is going to get hurt. A 2002 ESA report put the chances of a bad medical problem on a space mission at 0.06 per person year. As Komarovsky wrote in a journal article last year, for a crew of six on a 900-day mission to Mars, that's pretty much one major emergency all but guaranteed. Worst case, someone goes outside the spacecraft to fix something heavy, it gets away from them, crushing an arm or a leg. The astronaut gets exposed to vacuum, but makes it back inside the vehicle, dehydrated, partially frozen, bleeding heavily and in shock. What happens next will depend on whether the crew is in orbit around Earth or in interplanetary space, and on what kind of gear is on board. NASA doesn't seem headed for Mars anytime soon, but people like Elon Musk are making noises about missions as early as the end of this decade. At the International Astronomical Conference in Guadalajara last September, Musk described plans for a Mars mission that seem to now be delayed or scaled back. 
But he still says SpaceX is going. Speaking to the ISS Research and Development Conference in Washington D.C. on July 19, Musk also said, "If safety is your top goal, I would not go to Mars." Yes, sure, space is unsafe. Even if you manage to stave off killer radiation, you still have to worry about muscles atrophying and bones getting less dense and more breakable in weightlessness. Not to mention the ever-present danger, thanks to long-term isolation in a confined space, of psychiatric decompensation, which is NASA talk for catastrophic marbles losing. Spend a long time in space, though, and your body starts to change in all sorts of other ways too, and they all make traumatic injuries even worse. Your total amount of circulating blood and red cell mass goes down. Your blood vessels don't constrict and dilate as well. That suite of cardiovascular problems adds up to what on earth would look like the result of significant blood loss, and this is before you get injured. Your hormones go kind of wonky, and your immune system and wound healing get sluggish. Your bones break more easily and heal more slowly, if at all. Meanwhile, infectious bacteria become more resistant to antibiotics. And oh, hey, you know how you always get sick after a long airplane flight? Imagine if the flight lasted two years. Thanks to a freedom of information request from Vice, the medical gear on board the ISS is public knowledge. The crew has access to a small but professional pharmacy, including some serious drugs and epipens. They have an automated emergency defibrillator, gear to administer intravenous fluids, and diagnostic equipment like blood pressure cuffs. The ISS also carries an ultrasound device, for example, the only sophisticated imaging device on board, but one that's great at finding internal bleeding and monitoring fluid levels in eyeballs—a thing astronauts have to worry about so they don't go blind. It might also have therapeutic uses. Oh, and they have some dental equipment, which nope, hard pass. When it boils down to it, there's a few things we train to handle right away," says Steve Swanson, who commanded the ISS for six months in 2014. Anything besides that, we were going to be calling the ground. Swanson learned to insert a chest tube and do a tracheotomy on a goat during training, and spent some time assisting in an emergency room. But even with that experience behind him, he and his fellow astronauts wondered how a real emergency would actually play out. We always think about worst-case scenarios. What would you do if there was a little hole, a big hole? What would you really do? He says, "If someone is really bad, we'll throw them in a Soyuz and come down." But that's not an easy trip. Essentially, ISS crews learn to mostly stabilize and restrain an injured astronaut, and then call the ground to talk to a flight surgeon. Anil Menon, one of about twenty NASA flight surgeons, wouldn't tell any specific stories about astronauts' medical problems. Doctor-patient confidentiality applies even in space. But over the years, he has done everything from answering a slightly worried email from the ISS to a full-blown team meeting with specialists teleconferencing in. Well, that's all possible if you're in low Earth orbit, where the ISS is. The communications delay from Johnson Space Center to the floating lab is basically nil, and in the event of a serious injury, an astronaut could nominally get into a Soyuz capsule docked at the ISS and come home. On the other hand, de-orbiting is the kind of decision that goes all the way to the flight director and head of NASA, and it might not even work. If someone breaks a leg. How would you get them in the suit? Swanson asks. The Soyuz capsule is a cramped fit. They're really bent up in there. 
If the patient is intubated on a ventilator with oxygen tanks, they won't fit into the Soyuz at all, much less into a pressure suit. So NASA is sponsoring all kinds of research to try to figure this stuff out. Researchers on parabolic vomit-comet airplane flights with brief periods of weightlessness have performed intubations, opened and closed wounds, repaired blood vessels, and done all kinds of other gory stuff in animals. One team even cut a benign tumor off a human man's arm. But even administering drugs gets harder in space. Once you pop a blister tab, a pill is exposed to air and becomes oxidizable, so it decays in terms of usefulness, says Menon. IVs rely on gravity on Earth. In space, you need a pump, and bubbles that would otherwise float to the top stay in solution, potentially posing the threat of embolism. Peggy Whitson, on the ISS right now, has been experimenting with those procedures. You need a lot of fluid, but that's a lot of mass and volume that we don't have up there, Benin says, and bubbles float around in weird places. She's had a lot of problems with that. Some of the biggest challenges remain the messiest. In space, blood can splatter even more than it usually does on Earth, unconstrained by gravity. Or it can pool into a kind of dome around a wound or incision, making it hard to see the actual trauma. A fun fact, if you're bleeding more than 100 milliliters per minute, you're probably doomed. An amazing 2009 paper in the Journal of Trauma Management and Outcomes called Severe Traumatic Injury During Long-Duration Spaceflight suggests that an onboard computer monitoring hemorrhage rate could see that and ping the chief medical officer to say, yeah, don't use any more fancy anticoagulant bandages on that guy, he's a goner. One cool idea for dealing with the spurting pooling blood problem in space is to seal a wound or incision site in a kind of bubble filled with fluid, like saline, and then operate laparoscopically with tiny instruments on extended arms. A team led by James Antaki, a biomedical engineer at Carnegie Mellon, actually tried it on a simulated bleeding arm on a vomit comet mission four years ago. I wimped out on going, Antaki says. His first version had a flexible collar with gaskets for instruments and a transparent top, almost like a diver's mask. I've evolved it into a flexible, blister-like enclosure that's puncturable, he says. It's transparent, so you can see what's bleeding, the vessels and vasculature, and you poke through with an instrument, make stitches, or retract and resect, cauterize and go. It's made of a thick elastomer reinforced with a fibre mesh that stays closed, almost like a self-sealing tyre. And Taki hopes to send the latest version on a SpaceX mission to the ISS this autumn for testing, on a simulator, not on an astronaut. And Komarovsky, the would-be astronaut anesthesiologist, it turns out that all that cardiovascular reconditioning, the loss of blood volume and overall slowdown, can be catastrophic for anesthesia. The drugs we use to put people to sleep during general anaesthesia are actually quite dangerous. They lower blood pressure and they dilate blood vessels, he says. Administering them requires really finicky training to tailor dosages to different people's metabolisms, even on Earth. And that ignores the problem of how to get complicated, often flammable gases on board a spacecraft. Komarovsky suggests adding something new to the space exploration pharmacopoeia, the hardcore dissociative anaesthetic ketamine. It's used throughout the world in hostile environments, he says. It doesn't impair hemodynamic systems. The cardiovascular system is preserved, so it's suitable for patients after blood loss, in shock or severely dehydrated. And it's safe. 
Even if you get it wrong and give five times too much, most likely not much is going to happen, except, you know, a certain kind of party might break out. NASA, meanwhile, has awarded dozens of grants to researchers trying to better understand the physiology of space travel and possible medical interventions. Menon says they might be able to get around the signal delay problem with interplanetary telemedicine by sending multimedia tutorials on a long-duration mission or by having procedures with hard stops built in after certain steps. That way, astronauts doing the meatball surgery could stop, stabilize their colleague, and await evaluation and further instructions. If people are going to leave orbit, though, that research is going to have to head for the final frontier, too. I think something that would be ethically acceptable would be to try a sedation in space, because the risk is really moderate, and we could learn a lot, Komarovsky says. It'd have to be done by an anesthesiologist to start with, so I volunteer to go. See? Now he's working the angles. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.